0: back to the 2021 Vasculitis Guidelines podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and I'm excited to be talking to you today about Inca vasculitis with Dr. Sharon Chung. In case you're just tuning in, this is a podcast series from the Vasculitis Foundation, where I'll be reviewing the 2021 ACRVF sponsored guidelines and discussing the update recommendations with one of the main authors of each guideline document. We have an excellent episode today that I am very excited to share with you. Now, as I said, we'll be focusing on ANCA vasculitis today. We're going to restrict this episode to microscopic polyangiitis, or MPA, and granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or GPA, since the guidelines and most trials for that matter take that approach. We'll cover eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or eGPA, on a future episode with Dr. Phil Sayo. So with regard to the ANCA vasculitis, they are small vessel inflammatory diseases that may present with life threatening systemic involvements, they're often associated with an ANCA profile, so that's uh, typically PR3 positivity for GPA and MPO positivity for MPA. Uh, and classically, they present with constitutional symptoms, rash, arthralgias, and then some of the things that I like to call the scary vasculitic manifestations. So these include, but are certainly not limited to, uh, DAh, pauciimmune glomerulonephritis, and uh, mononeuritis multiplex. Some patients have more of a granulomatous presentation, which is more characteristic of GPA. And those ones can develop quite aggressive and destructive upper airway diseases. Uh, but but you know, before we get to our interview, I, I did wanna mention a few things from the guidelines that will likely come as no surprise to people who have treated this disease before. These include a conditional recommendation for methotrexate in non severe disease. Uh, I've often found myself using that for PR3-positive patients who have some simmering upper airway disease and I've good luck with it. Uh, They also conditionally recommend Bactrim as prophylaxis, nodding to its potential benefit for disease activity, though they don't recommend it here as an explicit treatment for disease, uh, favoring immunosuppressive therapies instead. And then finally, there's a number of uh, otolaryngology recommendations, uh, including an ungraded statement to collaborate on the rinses and stuff such, which I think we uh, I like to have ENT involvement whenever I can there, uh, to consider reconstructive surgery for destructive nasal, septal, bridge lesions, uh, and to use immunosuppression for mass lesions. So these are the orbital pseudotumors and the bumps that you find in lungs, such like that. Uh, I found all these pretty helpful as an affirmation of what many of us are doing. And so I wanted to go through them, but... There's a couple other things that I think are definitely worth discussing with uh, our guest for today, uh, who is Dr. Sharon Chung. Uh, You probably know her from an earlier episode, but she's the director of the UCSF Vasculitis Clinic and the lead investigator on the Guidelines Committee, so we're very lucky to have her. Uh, Dr. Chung, welcome back to the podcast for your second episode. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Wow, it's great to have you. So I'm going to dive right into it and give you a real zinger to start out with. So <laughs> let's talk about induction therapy. Yes. Um, the new guidelines recommended rituximab over cyclophosphamide for initial disease and for relapsing disease, so really in both cases, which is my preference. But I know that some people still uh, prefer cyclophosphamide especially in some specific cases that they are, are quite adamant about, things like severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, um, neurologic involvement, certainly acute renal failure. And so I was curious to hear what led the committee to recommend rituximab uh, and if there are any cases where you know, there was some disagreement about it or even just you personally that you would still favor cyclophosphamide.
1: So I think I'll start off and say before I have a whole slew of rotten tomatoes thrown at me, <laughs> is that all of these recommendations are conditional. Mm -hmm. So that means while the majority would prefer one intervention, the alternate intervention is still a reasonable consideration. So I'll just start off with that. So we have a conditional recommendation for rituximab over cyclophosphamide for remission induction and severe GPA or MPA. And I think what led to that um, are a number of factors First, I think we all recognize the toxicities of cyclophosphamide, and while we use a lot less cyclophosphamide now um, than we did in the past, either oral or IV, there is still potential toxicity, which can have significant impacts on the patients. For example, impact on future fertility, impact on future malignancy risk, et cetera. So I think that was one of the driving factors that led us to recommend rituximab over cyclophosphamide. Tonight. I think. I think the other factor is that honestly, there was a patient preference for it. So, as part of our, um, you know, guideline development process, we had a patient panel, and we had actually patients on the voting panel. And so, the patients also expressed a preference for rituximab. I will say that I have a preference for rituximab in my clinical practice because it's just a better tolerated medication when it comes to side effects like GI upset etc. bone marrow toxicity, etc. and so I think between the collective experience of the voting panel, um, the concerns about toxicity, the clinical trials that showed that it's definitely not inferior, and the patients of, uh, the preferences of the patients, that's really what led to the uh, recommendation, the conditional recommendation of rituximab over cyclophosphamide. Now. We did get into conversations about should cyclophosphamide be used in specific indications. And as you said, Mike, there are some individuals who are strong believers of cyclophosphamide for rapidly progressive glomerular nephritis or alveolar hemorrhage. And unfortunately, we just don't have strong data from the clinical trials at least to say one intervention is better than another in those particular situations. And so I think decisions to use, you know, cyclophosphamide for alveolar hemorrhage, et cetera, is more driven by clinical experience than it is by clinical trial data. Now, are there certain situations where um, I would use cyclophosphamide over rituximab for sure? Obviously, if someone hasn't responded to rituximab in the past, that's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. You're going to go to psychophosphate right first. Um, this Now, this next statement then just gets into my own personal practice, where if I have somebody who's got, for lack of a better word, bizarre vasculitis, like <laughs> unusual manifestations, I'll just throw something out. Pachymeningitis, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Like something that is just really unusual I'll be honest and say, I tend to reach for cyclophosphamide first. And that's just because we just have more experience with cyclophosphamide than we do with rituximab. And for bizarre presentations, I tend to go with the treatment that we have most experience with.
0: That's a a good perspective. And I think it's interesting to hear that the the patient voices helped push that guideline, which I, I like, I think it's great that we, have uh, moved towards including patients on guideline committees. I think that perspective is essential, and uh, so I think that's great. And I, I just, it's a hard topic for people. The other thing, and this is just uh, riffing, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts. That people say is that cyclophosphamide works quicker. I, I've never seen yeah. evidence to that effect, but it, it, you know, it, you could imagine that being true. So, well, you,
1: yeah, you... <laughs> and it's something that's been tossed around quite a bit, mm-hmm. and. For example, um, so there are two, as you probably know, there are two randomized trials supporting the use of rituximab or looked at rituximab versus cyclophosphamide for severe GPA and MPA. RAVE is the one that gets most bandied about because it was the larger study. But the second study, which is RituxFast, actually included two doses of intravenous cyclophosphamide in the rituximab group pretty much for the reason that you're talking about, Mike, is that there was a concern that there would be a delay in onset of action with rituximab. Um, and so perhaps priming the system or including you know, a small amount of cyclophosphamide in the beginning would prevent or you know, ameliorate the effects of this delayed onset of action. Um, I don't think there is good data showing that uh, a delayed, you know, that rituximab has a far more delayed onset of action. I think conceptually you can think of it because of its mechanism of action. Um, And when I talk to nephrologists uh, about rituximab use, they're like, yeah, it's scary because you give rituximab, and then you're just, and high dose prednisone, and then you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs, hoping that the high dose prednisone will cover patients uh, before the quote, full effect of rituximab kicks in. Yeah. So I think um, it is definitely, uh, you know, something that's been bandied about without a huge amount of data showing that patients have adverse effect, effects mm-hmm. um, due to this, Potential mechanism, Um, and you know, I have to say, it just makes me cautious. I mean, we just keep a close eye on our patients to make sure that um, their disease is not progressing and it's, you know, it's going in the direction that we would expect with therapy.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good refrain for managing people with vasculitis. And I've had the same feeling, you know, you give rituximab and you wipe out the B cells and then all the malhumors are still there floating around and sort of <laughs> making it fancy. But uh, there's not specific data that I've been able to find to, to back that up. But so, so sticking with rituximab actually. It was- Actually,
1: actually can I interrupt for, oh yeah, for a please. second? Absolutely. So one of the big pushbacks we got during this process um, was that we didn't, people were complaining that we didn't look at rituximab and cyclophosphamide together. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of uh, comments, that, both when we presented this at the ACR and during journal review, saying that this was a limitation. And I have to say that, at least in the United States, there isn't a, you know, it isn't widely used to use rituximab and cyclophosphamide together. And so that's one of the reasons why we haven't commented upon it. There's actually a clinical trial underway in Europe looking at, you know, combination therapy and its efficacy. Um, So that is something that, uh, you know, I think select clinicians may do uh, to treat uh, these diseases, but it's not something that I would say is routinely done.
0: That actually kind of brings me to the next point. And my concern with doing that is that uh, the outcomes these days are actually quite good. If we had 70% of people flaring within the first year, then you know, kind of layering immunosuppression would feel very enticing to me. But uh, these days we expect people to stay in remission. I mean, the remission rates at a year are actually very encouraging in this disease. And a lot of that's about rituximab as well, uh, which in these guidelines uh, was, given favor, was favored as the first line maintenance therapy. Uh, Yeah, I I know that uh, the Ritazmin results haven't been published yet, but I'm sure that informed this to some degree. Uh, They were quite impressive. It showed a substantial benefit against azathioprine. Uh, Yeah, so I was just curious to hear uh, if there's any cases other than non-severe disease where you would try a different uh, maintenance therapy or are you pretty much universally recommending uh, Rituximab in maintenance these days?
1: that we're pretty much using rituximab for remission maintenance these days. And it's not just because of the rituximab trial, but the Manritsen trial as well. You know, the first one that was published really did show a significant benefit for rituximab um, over azathioprine when it came to like major relapse rates during study follow-up. So I think we have good clinical trial data showing rituximab was frankly superior to azathioprine for remission
0: events. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And it's interesting, you know, there's never been a methotrexate against rituximab trial, but there was the wedgent trial, I believe, which yeah. methotrexate-imuran, and imuran kind of came out on top. So if you have like a transitive property, right? Yeah, and-
1: I think we are employing a transitive property. <laughs> um, I would say for the trial that you just mentioned, the methotrexate versus azathioprine, the two were found to be relatively comparable. Yeah. Um, so we do this transitive property where we say rituximab is better than azathioprine. Azathioprine is similar to methotrexate. So we assume rituximab is better than methotrexate. And then we take this one step further and that you know there are trials that show azathioprine is better than CELCEPT. And so we can kind of create this tiered approach where we say, okay, first-line therapy is rituximab. Second line therapy is methotrexate and azathioprine. Mm-hmm. Third line therapy is probably celsent or yeah. you know a related drug. It does involve having to use the transitive property quite a bit, but it you know that is the kind of the tiered
0: approach we're to, we think of. I mean, given your choices, math is better than voodoo. So that's not, <laughs> not a terrible way to approach things. <laughs> So you mentioned the main Ritsen trial. There was another main Ritsen that could have influenced these recommendations, but didn't quite. So the panel recommended against B-cell monitoring, which I also know is quite popular for people and was the focus of, of I believe, main Ritsen 2, where yeah. it showed that it was more or less the same. They, people got less rituximab. There was no significant difference in flares, but the... It looked like there might be something there if they'd used a larger sample. So I've been uncomfortable with that data and it looks like the panel recommended against it. So what, what led them to say no to the B-cell monitoring crew?
1: I think there's also some philosophical background to this too. So each of the rituximab studies, so RAVE and manritz and other studies that have looked at rituximab for ankyl-associated vasculitis, they've all seen flares in patients who were B cell depleted. So just because someone is B cell depleted is not protection against having a flare. And I think there's also philosophical thoughts about following incotiters, which was the other aspect of the Manritsen II 2 trial, you know, that dosing patients, whether or not their incotiters increased. And You know, I think most of us feel that incotiters are not great indicators of disease activity. And so, um, you know, and dose, and I don't think many of us would recommend dosing patients based on incotiters alone. And so you have a clinical trial which has somewhat um, equivocal outcomes. Um, which are hard to interpret because it was potentially an underpowered study. Um, and then you have some kind of mechanistic reasons to uh, be concerned about using these biomarkers to indicate disease activity or need for treatment. And I think if you combine that together, that led us to recommend Routinely using B cell counts or ANCA titers to dose rituximab for remission maintenance. So I think full confessions. Um, when I dose patient, when I think about remission maintenance, I usually start off with a scheduled approach. You know, whether it be every six months, as in Manritsen or every four months based on rituximab. But you know at the thought of keeping patients on scheduled dosing for the rest of their lives makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And so at some point um, I do consider dosing, trying to figure out a way if I can limit the amount of medications I'm exposing patients to. And when I reach that point, thinking about B cell counts or anti-titers comes into mind as a possible strategy for limiting medication exposure.
0: I, I I will confess to doing that as well. Uh, <laughs> it is much more voodoo than the transitive property. But uh, <laughs> something about the malhumor is coming back and someone who you're trying to stretch off of therapy uh makes you a little little, little skittish. And so uh I, I do think it's an interesting data point and interesting to use, but uh my, my practice also reflects this, right? I I I I generally use fixed dose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another trial that has clearly heavily influenced the guidance was the the PEX-A-VAS study, which was published this year, and which I think should have won the room madness tournament. Not sure if you can comment that, but uh, <laughs> uh, the Pexvas study, uh, you know, you guys recommend the low dose taper regimen, which yep. uh, made sense, and recommended against the routine use of plasma exchange, which certainly made sense in light of the PEXAVAS trial, but I think has been controversial. There's been a lot of people who yeah. feel that. Uh, and there is something of a hedge there if you read the text. <laughs>
1: there is definitely a hedge
0: there. Yeah, yeah, which is
1: uh, which I'll um, Which uh, I'll give you some background as to why the hedge is there. So plasma exchange has been looked at in two randomized trials, the mepic study um, conducted by David Jay, um, as well as PEXAVAS. And it's actually the Methex study, which kind of, Pushed the PEXAVAS study to be developed. Um, and, you know, the MEPIC study showed a benefit for plasma exchange, but enrolled a very sick population, a population with, you know, creatinine, I think it was greater than 5.7 or 5.8 or something like that. So mm. very sick, new onset disease, essentially. Um, and the PEXAVAS enrolled a different population, a population that wasn't nearly as sick um, and didn't have the same entry criteria. And because of that, there have been questions as to whether or not um, plasma exchange might hold benefit for patients who um, have uh, worse renal involvement. Mm -hmm. When we first considered this recommendation, it was actually, uh, we had limited data from the PEXAFAS trial. And once the PEXAFAS trial was published, we went back and reconsidered uh, this recommendation. And actually, um, it's interesting. When we we re-evaluated the data, there was really a suggestion that the benefit was different depending on your risk of end-stage renal disease. And so if someone was at high risk of end-stage renal disease, it suggested that the benefit was much stronger than those who were at low risk of end-stage renal disease. And this was... um, Further, this has been examined actually more in the nephrology by the nephrologists who've conducted a much more detailed uh, meta-analysis looking at this data, who've come up with similar conclusions. So I think in the, you know, in the interest of providing our patients with the best potential outcomes, I think we wanted to bring up the possibility that plasma exchange might have a role for those who are at high risk of end-stage renal disease. Now, there is no free lunch in the world, so plasma exchange does have risks. And one of the risks that was hinted at in uh, the PEXAFAS study and which came out in our uh, meta-analysis was that there was a potential increased risk of infection. So that's also led us to say, gosh, perhaps we should not do plasma exchange in everyone because there are increased risks involved and you have to weigh the potential increased risks with the potential benefit. And it seemed like the benefit was stronger in those who had a high risk of end-stage renal disease. And so that's where I think it's reasonable to consider it. So I wouldn't do it in everyone. (laughs) Yeah. I would consider it in those who have a high risk of end-stage renal disease.
0: Let me, let me push you on this a little bit more. Of course. One, one more patient population. So the even though we didn't see this sort of subgroup analysis for people with severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, And there there just weren't that many of those people. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who wind up in the hospital um, very ill. And they're the ones that I think we give them pulse, we give them rituximab and then or cyclophosphamide. And then we uh, start to get nervous because they're not getting better. And I I think a lot of people reach for a plasma exchange when that happens, including myself. So curious to hear your thoughts on on that particular situation as well.
1: Yeah, so for alveolar hemorrhage, you know, when we look at the evidence, there doesn't seem to be a decrease in mortality with plasma exchange, or a decrease in relapse rates. And so, because of that, we don't rec- we didn't recommend the routine use of plasma exchange for patients with alveolar hemorrhage. Um, but I do think it's reasonable when your patient is tanking. And you know, things are not going the right direction. That's when you, in some respects, throw the kitchen sink at them. That's when you pull out all stops. And if you've done, you know high dose glucocorticoids and you've done your typical remission induction therapy and you're pretty sure the patient's not infected, um, that's when you start thinking about things like, Plasma exchange. So I think it's reasonable to do so. It's just, you know, for all comers, probably not um, the best of ideas, but for the patients who are really not responding well to therapy, I think it's very reasonable.
0: Yeah, I think there's this kind of, uh, you know, don't let your patient pass away without giving a try of <laughs> X thing for every specialty. You know, in critical care, oh, was,
1: I thought it was pulse glucocorticoids oh, for rheumatology.
0: Yeah, no, well, we, already, we, are, we always do that. <laughs> critical care, it's like, oh man, this isn't going well. Let's give it some steroid. And then for us, it's like, oh, this is scary. Let's give some plasma exchange. You know, for I, in ID, it's doxycycline, yeah. <laughs> neuro, it's IVIG. Everyone's got their thing. So. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I have the same feeling where it's hard not to try, especially because it feels like it's one of the things that could acutely help somebody. Yeah. And actually, the the guidelines talked about IVIG as well, not in the acute setting, but for patients who are more refractory, which is a little surprising to me. That's not something that I generally do. Uh, Was that just from the literature review or how did IVIG uh, get?
1: Yeah, actually, I think one of the reasons that IVIG got incorporated is because it's one of the few treatments that actually has a randomized controlled trial Mm. behind it. Um, It wasn't large, but there was a trial of uh, IVIG for a refractory disease. And so I think that is one of the reasons why it came in. I'll be first to say, we shouldn't be thinking about IVIG as a treatment for anca associated vasculitis for the vast majority of patients, because the vast majority of patients will do, you know, will have reasonable outcomes with rituximab and cyclophosphamide and methotrexate and azathioprine and things along those lines. But I think IVIG is unique in that, you know, for refractory disease, as I said, there's a randomized controlled trial and it's unique in that it's not immunosuppressive. And so, for example, if you have uh, uh, a pregnant patient who can't do cyclophosphamide and you're nervous about giving rituximab in, it's something that can be a bridge to, that you can use as a bridge before using other therapies, or it can be something that you can consider in somebody who, you know, is septic uh, from the other therapies you've given them, and yet still seems to have active vasculitis. But for most patients, it's not going to come. You know, it shouldn't be considered as, you know, routine therapy for their ink-associated vasculitis. Now, I'll be honest, though, a number of my patients do get IVIG, and it's because I've made them hypogammaglobulinemic with rituximab. So um, a number of my patients do get it, but it's not for their ANCA-associated vasculitis
0: directly. Hmm. That's really interesting. I think you said the guidelines can often help us uh, find the gaps in our knowledge and as a as a as a whole group, but uh, this this was interesting to me because it's not something that I routinely reached for. So thanks, which for is the- good. <laughs> yeah, which I yeah, I feel better now. Yes, uh, which I'm is good. IVIG, and I'm just in the dark here. No, nah, uh- <laughs> no. Nah. All righty. Uh, well, one last question before we go, and uh, I, I apologize. This is a tough one. So you know, we we talked in a prior episode about sort of the tension of updates as uh, things mm-hmm. progress and. Unfortunately for these guidelines, they're going to land in the wake of the ADVOCATE trial, which I think a lot of yeah. us expect to influence practice uh, somewhat uh, immediately. So had that trial been published, wh- where do you think it would have landed in these, in these guidelines or how would it have changed things? I think I can punt and
1: say that um, we only consider therapies that are FDA approved, that patients have access. So, even if the trial was published, if it was not FDA approved, I'm still protected. Uh, You know, I think um, we could spend an entire episode probably talking about the Advocate trial. Uh, There's some interesting aspects about the Advocate trial. Um, One, uh, I mean, I'll just delve into it briefly. One, it was uh, showed non-inferiority at six months, which I think, you know, is great, but I do wonder, is it just non-inferior because the response is driven by remission-induction therapy? Like everybody had still received remission-induction therapy, you know, six months, starting six months prior, and is that why uh, the two arms were non-inferior? And then the superiority um, shown at 52 weeks was Avacapan essentially against no therapy because prednisone had ended uh, by week 20. So I think I think there are some still some questions uh, to be answered about the Avacapan trial. I will say overall though, you know one of the messages that we received from the patient panel was essentially anything we can do to minimize glucocorticoid exposure and glucocorticoid toxicity is a good thing. And with that premise in mind, that led to the, you know, recommendation for the lower dose glucocorticoid regimen being recommended uh, from Pexavas, And I suspect if Vacapan um, is approved, w- future guidelines will probably take a look and may come out with a recommendation supporting its use. I think right now that's very premature for me to say, uh, but there is an overall sense that we should limit glucocorticoids for our patients. And if this allows us to do so in a safe fashion, I think many of us will be excited to do so.
0: I think that's very, very well put. I, I did tell you I was going to, I was going to give you a hard one at the end there. That's okay. Uh, and and I, I share your concerns about this. I mean, not only were steroids stopped uh, before week 26, but uh, rituximab wasn't redosed. And so it was essentially a vacapan versus nothing for quite some time in a disease yeah. where we all Believe people need maintenance therapy, <laughs> so I, it's gonna. I think it remains to be seen exactly how this will be used, and especially in countries where uh, resources are managed judiciously. Uh, I will be curious to see how they they adopt it. Uh, I,
1: I forgot. I apologize for interrupting. There is actually another aspect of the Avacapan study, which I don't think has gotten a lot of recognition, but it's that the Avacap. That patients were allowed to use glucocorticoids outside of the study regimen, mm-hmm. so there were patients in the gluco in the abacapan arm who got glucocorticoids as well. Mm-hmm. And it's um, in the publication. It's I will say that it's very hard to discern how many they were and what their dose was and for how long it was. So, um, I think, you know, I think the concept of abacapan is great. The study itself though um, is difficult to interpret. Um, So uh, I'm a fairly conservative person when it comes to new treatments. So I doubt, you know, if it is approved by the FDA, I doubt I'll be the first person to jump on the bandwagon to use it. Um, But I'm at least glad that that potential option is out there.
0: Hmm. I think I'm more on the liberal side in that regard, but I think (laughs) that you and I, have very similar feelings towards this trial. Yeah. So uh, I think that that is a pretty good place to wrap up, <laughs> unless you have any Sounds further good. thoughts on Inca vasculitis.
1: No, I think we're good.
0: We even covered the the hot news that uh, just came out. So uh, I think that'll wrap things up. It's been wonderful again, having you on the podcast. Uh, this has been a very fun episode and, and a disease state that I think rheumatologists are all accustomed to, but also really need information about because it can be a, a real challenge. So. Thank you everyone for tuning in to listen. Please be sure to check out the Vasculitis Foundation. You can find them on their website at vasculitisfoundation.org or on Twitter at Vasculitis Found. You can find me at EV Room. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you once again, Dr. Chung for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here.